This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Be sure and check out the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and the uh, Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, Before we get rolling, I want to uh, acknowledge our Patreon Star Chamber donors, Tim Sullivan, Deep Paul, and the Harmonic Egg. Thank you so much, all of you, so, so much for your continued loyalty and support And your monthly donation means a great deal. It makes a huge difference, and it helps me and Ryan uh, continue to do what we do here. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Pick the donor tier that's right for you. Of course, any amount is greatly appreciated. Coming up in the second half. Former cattle rancher turned writer researcher Julius Ruchel will be here. He's the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con. And Julius will discuss the mysterious disappearance and then the reappearance of the flu. Remember that? Natural versus vaccine induced immunity, the Inability of the vaccines to control the virus and other extraordinary lessons about the end of the pandemic. Also in hour two, David Redman is the former head of Alberta, Canada's Emergency Management Agency. And uh, he'll be here to explain how governments across Canada did the exact opposite of what they should have done in response to the pandemic. The exact opposite. He says it's nothing less than criminal negligence. This hour, U.S. constitutional lawyer Jonathan Emord returns to the program to discuss the massive 
trucker protests sweeping across Canada and, in fact, now around the world. We're going to explore the role of civil disobedience in a a healthy Western liberal democracy. How do we know it's time to engage in civil disobedience? What are the limits of civil disobedience? What's the difference between civil disobedience and insurrection? Jonathan Emord has been practicing constitutional and administrative law before the federal courts and agencies since 1985. Having begun his career as an attorney in the Federal Communications Commission during the administration of President Ronald Reagan, Jonathan has maintained an abiding conviction to achieve full First Amendment protection for the freedom of speech and press. In 1991, he authored the critically acclaimed Freedom, Technology, and the First Amendment, in which he chronicled the intellectual foundations of the First Amendment and advocated replacing government control over the airwaves with a title registry, private property rights approach. He's the author of several books, including Global Censorship of Health Information, The Rise of Tyranny, Restore the Republic, and his latest, The Authoritarians. Jonathan E. Mord, welcome back to the program. How are you? Just fine. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Let me get your overall impressions of the uh, the trucker protests that started in Canada. I guess they began, uh, well, they rolled into Ottawa around uh, the, uh, the end of January, and uh, it's just sort of taken off worldwide. What are your overall impressions? What, what stands out for you? Well, I'm grateful. Uh, I think that this is just what happens when you deprive people of their individual liberty. Uh, they'll either go the way of people who are succumbing to totalitarianism around the world, which is just to cave in to those who wish to take their liberties away, or in the case of these strong Canadians, they refuse to have their rights taken away without standing up and at least protesting. And I think that their protests have been very effective, and I think it is in the long line of civil rights protests uh, dating back to the 60s. It's... uh, it's it's their right uh, that they're standing up for, their freedoms, and um, no one should be uh, disparaging them for that because uh, it shouldn't be a one-sided environment in Canada where authority figures force the people to bend down and, and worship at the throne of this vaccine mandate or the vaccine passports or limiting all of their rights to worship and to go to places to congregate or to eat, uh, forcing them to uh, form an allegiance, which is, you know, they've transformed vaccination into a political event in which people have to endorse adherence to a state dogma that's driven more out of politics than it is out of science. It's been a mistake from the start. Coercion doesn't work. You've got to give people full information and allow them to decide what's in their own best interest and what's in the best interest of their families. And ironically, despite all of their efforts, the lockdowns have been a miserable failure, have not moved the mark at all against the virus. But what has changed the environment is the Omicron virus. 
the Omicron virus has succeeded because of its uh, ability to block the Delta virus, the original virus, in causing a precipitous drop in the number of cases worldwide. And it's uh, really the way out. It's sort of nature's vaccine, as Dr. Marty McCary puts it. What is the role of civil disobedience? Why is it important to have uh, that that tool, I suppose, for citizens in a in a Western liberal democracy? So with freedom comes the ever-present risk that those in government will abuse their power and take freedom away. So you can't just assume that freedom is whatever Parliament says it is. Freedom, you drive your liberties not from Parliament but from God. And those liberties are unalienable. And when the state trenches upon your rights, you have but few recourses. You can revolt in armed rebellion, and one would hope that that would be a very last resort, uh, or you can do what is very a tried and true method of protesting, and usually protest is considered your right as well. It's a freedom of speech and uh, a freedom of assembly, which are deemed to be fundamental rights. And when you choose to do that, you're doing nothing more than exerting your sovereignty as citizens, proving that you are in political dissent from a movement by those in power who are ultimately answerable to you unless they wish to take over and assume totalitarian powers, which they're not lawfully able to do. So when Trudeau pounds his chest and stares down the Canadian public and stares down the truckers and says, back down, and I insist upon it, uh, he's, he's being foolish, politically foolish, because I think the long-term consequences of his uh, unwillingness to compromise will be borne out ultimately in, in elections. But I believe that uh, more fundamentally, he's showing himself to be an enemy of the people's liberties. And that's not a good place to be for a leader in a democracy. He's accountable to the people. He should be meeting with the truckers. He should be meeting with Canadian citizens who dissent. He shouldn't ignore them. He shouldn't hide from them. He shouldn't label them terrorists or fascists. He shouldn't uh, try to use police to uh, harm them or obstruct their protests. Uh, that's, that's what he should be doing. Now, clearly breaking the law is ordinarily something that one ought not do in, in, in the course even of a protest. However, when the law itself is unjust, when the law itself violates your liberties, then uh, if you are following your rights, you would not follow, you would not uh, abide by a law that violates your rights. If, if, the, if the state says you may not speak in dissent, the state has violated your freedom of speech. You can vindicate that right potentially through legal action in a court. But if there isn't time sufficient and the threat is imminent, you may have to do what Martin Luther King did, which is to sit 
engage in sit-down strikes or to march in areas where they wouldn't allow uh, people of color to march or to drink from the whites-only uh, soda fountain or bubbler. And that's, uh, that is a sign, yes, it is a violation of, of a, a law, but a law that is unjust, that violates the Constitution, that violates your rights. So Jonathan W. Emord is with us, the author of The Authoritarians, emord.com, E-M-O-R-D, emord.com. You mentioned, you know, at the far end is armed insurrection, and of course, you know, we, we hope that never happens. Uh, but, you know, where is the line? Is there a line for peaceful civil disobedience? So, for example, um, when the truckers and their supporters were blocking the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, uh, over which about 25% of uh, the, uh, the goods that are traded between our two countries travels, and uh, we're told that this was putting the auto sector in, in grave, uh, in jeopardy, that, that the auto plants would have to shut down, and this was going to hurt people uh, who had jobs in the auto sector and so forth. And, and, some, and, and I, would, I would argue, uh, in order to be consistent, because I, I opposed, for example, protesters who were against the construction of pipelines in Canada, they were throwing uh, burning tires onto railroad tracks. They were trying to block uh, and impede the construction of certain infrastructure. And I opposed that. Uh, so to be consistent, I thought, well, you know, perhaps they should allow people to travel on the Ambassador Bridge, allow that trade to go through. What are your thoughts on that? And what are the limits to civil disobedience? Well, I do believe that... Uh it's preferable for the protesters to engage in lawful protest, and certainly by blocking the bridge uh, completely, um, they they are they are denying the use of a thoroughfare that's meant to be open to the public, and so they're violating law. However, uh, their point in breaking the law, and now laws are oftentimes broken in in when one engages in political dissent. And in this instance, people are fighting for their liberties, their individual freedom. Uh, and as a consequence, it's, it's quite a different thing uh, to stand up for your freedom against an unjust law being applied against you versus uh, taking on, uh, you know, an, an industrial party because you object to pollution or some other thing that doesn't immediately affect your individual freedom. Uh, having said that, there is, of course, a, a very easy solution to this problem, which is for Justin Trudeau to get rid of the vaccine mandates and get rid of the vaccine passports and to work with the provinces to achieve that objective. It's against what he has argued for, but there is no sound justification for his position. And so while I sympathize greatly with the truckers, I agree with you that uh, one ought to pursue a lawful course mindful of two things. One is that it's not necessary, you know, if it was indispensable for some reason that a law be broken 
in order to establish your position on rights. And we meant, I mentioned one where you have segregation in, in the 60s and 50s and the Jim Crow era in the South, and individuals of color would want to drink from the whites-only fountain or go use a whites-only bathroom or get on the, the whites-only segment of a train or a bus to establish the illegal, the fundamental rights violation taking place. But they were also willing to be arrested and to suffer the consequences of the arrest, even in protest. So, yes, there are times when civil disobedience becomes necessary. Remember George Wallace standing uh, in front of the school in Georgia, when, or was it Alabama? When uh, the National Guard were called upon Alabama, to, right? Yeah, Alabama, to ensure that federal law would be followed. He was standing up for state law. Likewise, these truckers are really standing up for fundamental law. That is their unalienable right uh, to be free of this coercion and forced compliance. Um, but I would say it's it's in their best interest not to block the bridge entirely. And likewise, I think they've decided um, to move out of the residential areas in Ontario, um, I mean Ottawa and Ontario, around the Parliament so that they can, uh, you know, can, the people uh, who are in the neighborhoods can be at peace. And that um, is smart. That's a very smart move. Because I think most Canadians, I may be, I'm speculating, but I think it's probably so, that most Canadians have sympathy with them at this point. I would certainly hope that is the case. Oh, well, I would hope so as well. But according to the polls, uh, if they're to be believed, <laughs> that's always a question. Uh, up to two-thirds of Canadians actually would would be in favor, Jonathan, of using the military to forcibly remove protesters. This breaks my heart. This, this fact, if this is in fact accurate, this poll, two-thirds of Canadians, part of me thinks this country's lost. What are your thoughts? When, when, the, when the overwhelming, uh, um, the, the population is against you in your endeavor to secure even... They're even fighting for the rights of those people that are opposed to them. But when so many are in opposition to you, what does that say about a country and its future? Well, it, if indeed it is true that an overwhelming majority of Canadians support the government's position and would have the military arrest the uh, Freedom Convoy people, um, that's a very sad sign because that means that uh, coercion, force, and uh, it, to eliminate political dissent is acceptable to most Canadians. What I would say then to that majority is that you had better beware that there will come a time when you have an interest individually that dissents from the majority. And you would like to have a, a place of safe harbor where the law would protect you in your dissent. But if you follow this course, 
you will ensure that your own rights are being violated because it's not just the trucker's rights that you're taking away with this precedent. You're establishing that the state can overwhelm and override and use brute force against any in dissent. So it's a slippery slope they've created if they believe in this, and they had better be careful because there will come a time as government continues to grow because that's what they're asking be done if they ask for the for the military to be used against the citizens of the of the country not against a foreign adversary there will come a time when that same military will be used against them because one thing's for certain the truth is the more power you give to the state and the less power you allow for individual discretion and dissent the less freedom you have and it continues on in that vein until there comes a point when if you don't adhere to what is demanded you will be punished so it's it's not good to to, uh, to to condemn others for the exercise of their freedoms you should celebrate freedom universally even if you disagree with those who are protesting their right to protest, their right to assemble, their right to freedom of religion, their right to attend the churches of their choices, their right to travel unmolested by the state. All of these things are fundamental rights. And when you give them up for whatever cause, and in this it's tragic that people would give it up for a virus, then you can't really have anyone to blame but yourself because you didn't stand up for liberty. Jonathan, we've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Jonathan W. Emord, U.S. constitutional lawyer, emord.com, the website. The book is The Authoritarians. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Jonathan W. Emord, U.S. constitutional lawyer. The latest book is The Authoritarians, Emord, E-M-O-R-D dot com, Emord. We're talking about civil disobedience, the uh, the truckers' protest. Um, in Canada, we have a Charter of Rights that was passed in uh, 1982. I think it took effect officially in 1985. And we have our fund- fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression – Freedom of the press, of course, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association. We have our democratic rights, of course. We have mobility rights. Every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. That one's being challenged right now, obviously, because if you're vaccine-free, you you literally are a prisoner in in this country. We have the right to, uh, to move and gain livelihood. Um, we have legal rights, life, liberty, and the security of a person. But these fundamental rights 
are not absolute. We have something, I call it the weenie clause, Jonathan. It's section one of the charter, and it says the Canadian Rights Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in us in, in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed, prescribed by law as can be demonstrated uh, sorry, as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So in other words, again, these rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. To me, that's problematic because we have fundamental rights, but ultimately, if they can be overridden by a judge, what good are they? What are your thoughts? Is that section problematic? You bet. And the reason uh, it's problematic is because it's based on a false premise. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson defined liberty in the early days of the American Revolution, he said that liberty was freedom from restraint and that it was beyond that to be limited only by another person's liberty, right of liberty, but not by the law, because he said the law is often the tyrant's weapon. And so it is in the United States that we have pre-political rights. Our rights are said to come from God in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, and not from the state. The problem in Canada with the Charter of Rights is that it's a creature of Parliament, and so it is affected by law to the extent Parliament wishes to constrain rights. It may use Section 1, and that, of course, is entirely unacceptable. The reason why it's unacceptable is that these rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the, uh, and property... These rights are indeed pre-political, and you need not answer to a magistrate to exercise them. You need not achieve the assent of Parliament or any other authority to exercise them. They are your birthright. They come from God. This notion, which is embedded in Lockean philosophy in the Second Treatise on Government, is revolutionary and form the foundation for the principles that underlie the American Constitution. You lack that written Constitution, you lack that written Bill of Rights that recognizes the rights of man to be pre-political, that understands that it, you don't go to the state to get your rights. Your rights you have at birth, and they come from God. Now, the problem, then, is one of, of living in a world of second bests. How do you cope in a world that has not recognized your rights as fundamental birthrights that are unalienable, incapable of being taken away from you? Well, you must struggle. And you must struggle to change the law. But, of course, it's a bigger issue to change the law to recognize these rights as pre-political particularly now in this late stage of development of the Canadian democracy. But if Canada wishes to have rights and have them be protected 
and not have them capable of being written away by any uh, renegade, radical prime minister like Justin Trudeau comes down the pike, you have to make it impossible for that prime minister to be able to exercise such a broad blanket ability to affect a constriction of your rights. There will always be emergencies. Everything can be arguably defined into a state of emergency. Uh, tyrants throughout history have used the argument of, an, of military necessity or an emergency to justify the deprivation of people's rights. Tyrants are born every day claiming that they have to exercise authoritarian control in order to protect the public from one alleged harm or another. This is just the latest variety of it. They've seized upon the, vac the uh, virus as a justification for a gross expansion in state power to the extent that people literally cower in, in fear about what will become of them if they transgress even the slightest rule on where they can travel, what vaccine passport has to be used to get into one uh, uh, facility or, or uh, place of business or another because of this type of environment. This is the way it is in Australia or has been for some time in Australia as well. It's a, it's is, is this for a Canada particular function of parliamentary systems well, as, uh, as opposed to the American system that uh, in the parliamentary system and countries that live under such systems, we tend to place or put greater value on disability, the rights of the collective versus the individual. When you, you hear in the media up here all the time, I find it rather um, uh, disheartening You know that, that we have to somehow balance our individual rights or we have to give up our individual rights for the greater good. Uh, we, we have a, a state broadcaster here, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is now on social media calling the idea of freedom as a far the Globe and Mail, the newspaper said that freedom has been weaponized by the far right. I've never heard such nonsense, but this is this is the reality up here. But to my point about the the parliamentary system and the, the, the from the, the British Commonwealth, uh, is 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 this um, giving into the collective the collective rights? superseding the individual rights. Is this a, um, unique to the parliamentary system? No, it's common among all socialist states. Um, collective rights are a myth. There is no such thing as a collective right. Rights are individual. You, uh, you don't speak in unison with 50 other people or 100 other people on uh, all the topics of interest to you. They're unique to you. Your freedom of speech is your right, unique to you. Likewise, your freedom of religion, your freedom of conscience, your freedom to travel. We don't travel as herds. We're not herd animals. We are individuals, and as a result, our rights must be individual. When you talk of collective rights, it's a myth. Rights don't arise from a collective. 
a collect this con this notion of collective rights is a byproduct of socialism. It's a byproduct of Friedrich Hegel's uh, conception of collectivism that arose in the early 19th century and pre presaged Marxism. It is an idea that merely justifies the exercise of state action in transgression of individual rights. Because collective rights are, are ordinarily pitted against individual rights. This idea that society has an interest that is more important than your rights, and therefore your rights can be violated to ensure protection for the collective, is nothing more than socialism. And what it results in is increasing levels of deprivation of freedom. It means that you are more of a slave than you are a sovereign. And in, in a just society, where individual rights are protected, the individual is sovereign. Sovereign over his person. Sovereign over those things to which he has used the sweat of his brow and his labor to create something of value and property unique to himself. Uh, Jefferson said, I am not a friend of a very energetic government. It is always oppressive. We should always have a wary eye about government. Government is nothing more than the use of force at the behest of those who are granted a license to engage in political decision-making. And that is a very dangerous thing. When you have a monopoly of force that you can exercise whenever you care to declare a public interest or collective right or collective end, then there is nothing left to the individual except that which the state allows. It's the Jonathan, opposite. Uh, pardon the interruption. Got to take, take another time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Jonathan W. E. Mord, author of The Authoritarians, emord.com, will also take questions from the, uh, the live chat. And uh, Ryan, my live stream producer, will collate them and I'll read them on the air. Back with more of my conversation with Jonathan right after these. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Just a reminder, coming up in Hour 2, Julius Ruchel. I call him the cowboy philosopher, former cattle rancher turned data researcher. He dives deep into the, uh, into the data, and he's uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. And then, towards the tail end of the program, the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency, David Redman, will be here to talk about how all of the provinces, all 10 of the provinces, all three of our territories had perfectly fine emergency response or emergency pandemic response plans in place before 2020. They get updated regularly. And they were all thrown out the window. In the panic, I suppose. And so now... The response has been the exact opposite of what those pandemic plans recommended. 
David Redman coming up in uh, hour two. Jonathan W. Emord stays with us, the author of The Authoritarians. And uh, the website is emord.com. So, Jonathan, your uh, Bill of Rights, you don't have that uh, that Section 1, that weenie clause that I mentioned earlier, uh, that, you know, all of our uh, rights and freedoms are, are there are they are subject to reasonable limits. That's Section 1 of our, our uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You don't have a Section 1, and yet still, there are many occasions where, through the pandemic, inalienable uh, right, rights have been infringed upon, and the courts have have ruled that those infringements were justified. So what good is a charter or a bill of rights in this case? Well, that's a very good point. We have raging socialism in the United States. We have people like AOC and Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, who are advocates of this collectivism we've been talking about, uh, we've been talking about. And they do just what uh, Justin Trudeau has done. Um, while they seem to have a liberal tolerance for mass destruction by BLM and Antifa and even align themselves with BLM, despite its destructive activities and its movement towards socialism and education and its rather callous disregard for actual losses suffered by individual uh, uh, black people in this country and in Canada. Um, he nevertheless, Justin Trudeau, aligns himself with them, and he ignores their destruction. He doesn't bring down the threat of use of military force against them, even though they caused mass destruction, certainly across uh, the United States, for uh, over a year and continuing in city after city, burning, looting, uh, murder, and in Canada to some degree as well, and, and with Canadian churches being desecrated and churches throughout the, and religious centers throughout the United States being damaged and desecrated. Um, so there is a threat on, and a movement afoot not just in Canada, but in the United States, of course, as well, where uh, rights are being violated, where courts are not protecting rights, where individuals are getting away with literally murder, where this whole movement to let criminals go free, uh, unchecked by the law. And yet notice the hypocrisy here. Notice how the liberal media in the United States attacks the Freedom Convoy and likewise in Canada, and how the state takes the view that these peaceful people, overwhelmingly peaceful, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single instance of any organized violence like you had with BLM and Antifa riots all across the nation, uh, and, and in Canada, too. Uh, and yet, the state was quite tolerant there, and is utterly intolerant of the Freedom Convoy, mouthing platitudes about protecting freedom of speech, but looking at for every alternative to declare anything they do unlawful, depriving them of fuel, trying to make it difficult for them to survive, uh, cutting off access to goods and services, denying people the right to 
supply them this sort of thing they never would have thought to do in a million years to the racist protesters and the advocates of socialism isn't that interesting well we have um the um the counter protests now in ottawa and elsewhere these are people i guess who are protesting freedom protesting getting rid of mask mandates getting rid of vaccine passports they're they're in favor of those things uh never mind that they're free to continue to you know cower in their basement and wear their mask 24 7 but that's not good they want to protest and now we're seeing in these protests a really uh, ugly vindictive side we're seeing people holding up signs saying gas the vaccinate or the unvaccinated gas the unvaccinated kill the unvaccinated uh we are seeing uh, at these protests um uh the, uh the 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 hammer and sickle the flag you know of communism which has killed 100 million people in the tw- in the 20th century and of course this is all being totally ignored by the mainstream media. Now they found, you know, one agent provocateur waving a Confederate flag up in Ottawa, which has no historical context whatsoever. Uh, and there was one agent provocateur waving a Nazi flag, and it was called out, of course, by the uh, by the truckers. Uh, but now we have these gas the unvaccinated, kill the unvaccinated, and hammer and sickle flags everywhere. The mainstream media says absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's uh, it's really tragic to see this groupthink in the media, where dissent again is is not allowed. Cancel culture rages on, and um, that's most unfortunate. While these people who are protesting in favor of Marxism, communism, and intolerance of dissent are enemies of liberty, it is precisely because we love liberty that we protect their right to protest. And that is the true sign of someone who believes in individual liberty, that they would allow even the opinions that they hate to be communicated to ensure that the law provides equal protection. This gets back to what we talked about earlier, when those who are advocating uh, denying the Freedom Convoy their rights and using the military against them are on the slippery slope. But okay, Jonathan, what? sorry, this was a short segment. I, we've got to take one final time out, come back. We'll get to some uh, questions from our live stream. Jonathan E. Mord, author of The Authoritarian, stays with us. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. U.S. constitutional lawyer Jonathan W. Emord is with us, the authoritarians. How do we get a copy, Jonathan? Amazon or Walmart.com, Target.com, but most people get it from Amazon. And for my Canadian listeners, what would you say to them if they say, well, that's an American perspective? What would you say? No, I'm an advocate of individual liberty. While I'm very much an American, I believe to my core 
in the principle of individual liberty articulated in the second treatise on government by John Locke, who was a servant of the crown, of course, uh, never came to fruition in England, never came to fruition in Canada, but did come to fruition in our country here in the United States. And that is a great recourse. I would hope that someday every nation of the world could benefit from that recognition that we are sovereign, we are born free, our rights must be respected by the state, the state is our servant, not our master. And it just um, offends me to my core to see my brethren in Canada, uh, many of whom are related to me. My relatives actually were from Ottawa, and they came across into the United States from there on my father's side. But I just, even were that not the case, I just, Canada is a great free state, a great ally in, in the fight for liberty, but right now it's discrediting itself, as is Joe Biden, discrediting our own country in the United States by adhering to this socialist agenda, collectivism, and denying individual rights to dissent. You know, there's an alternative to this that people don't recognize, and they ought to take it very seriously. And that alternative is to recognize the doctor-patient relationship, the individual rights of each person, allowing people to fully inform to exercise their individual choice, to choose what's best for them and their own families. We can't substitute for that a collective approach, a one-size-fits-all, get-a-vaccine-or-die approach. It simply is grossly insufficient. The vaccines are not perfect. They're not the solution to this problem. Ultimately, we have to rely on, on uh, treatments. There's going to be vaccine fatigue. No doubt it's already setting in. There are only so many persons going to want to accept it in a lifetime, particularly if they get sick from shot or if they feel uncomfortable with pain resulting from the shot, or uh, if there are alternatives, and there are treatment alternatives. Early treatment is the most important thing to t to deal with this. We have fulsome right. immunity coming out of the, the uh, Omicron, but we still need treatment available everywhere. And what these nations, both the United States and Canada, have done is they have made it so difficult to get access to treatments because they want to maximize the percentage of people being vaccinated, even though the vaccine wanes within four or five months. And yeah, I have a I have a bad feeling, Jonathan, that part of this is they want to re eliminate the control group. And I know that's sinister, but I'm left with very few alternatives at this point. I want to get to the live stream uh, questions here. You betcha asks Jonathan, how does how do we balance people's right to protest and people in downtown not to have to listen to honking horns all day? Yeah, um, there are reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on protest that should be recognized. In other words, uh, you have rights as a citizen who lives in your home in Ottawa, and you have a right to peaceful existence in your home that can't be violated. And so there can be reasonable restrictions that protect your, your rights as a homeowner, and there should be. Yeah, I think the truckers have done a pretty good job in terms of self-policing uh, with that. Um, Momzilla asks, 
Oh, wants to know whether I would lead a freedom party in Canada or Ontario. Well, we already have those options. I think we have the People's Party that are running federally. And uh, here in Ontario, we have uh, the new Blue Party. Uh, let's see. Phil uh, Minervino asks, what role do the big government? I'm not sure exactly what Phil means, but uh, Jonathan, do you want to talk about the role of big banks in government? Well, we have this unfortunate thing in the United States called the Federal Reserve System, and you likewise have a centralized system of banking in Canada. And um, it's a long story that we'll, we we probably can't take this show to address because the topic is different, but suffice it to say that uh, corruption prevails in this unit, unity between banking and government, and it has resulted in very severe restrictions on competition in banking and in uh, competition in currency. And that has uh, been to the great detriment of individuals and to freedom. So it's another big problem that needs to be addressed. We have a number of politicians, including the Prime Minister, including uh, one of the, uh, the leaders of the opposition, the NDP, leader Jagmeet Singh, the federal finance minister, a number of premiers who all seem to have sworn allegiance to the World Economic Forum. Do you think that if you are the leader of a country or or of a, a province, uh, that that you, you should be disqualified from running if you are a member of the World Economic Forum? I do believe that Unions of that sort are greatly to the disadvantage of people within their own nations, whether it's in the United States or in Canada. We need to be... Nationalism is real and is important. Canada is a a nation with people who are necessarily uh, similar in their... much much closer in their wants, needs, and interests than, say... Uh, they would be to people in Africa or France or somewhere else. And I mean this in the sense that you have an interest in protecting the resources of Canada and ensuring that your customs and traditions are protected to the extent that it defines uh, free options for your people and uh, defines who you are as people in the world. This idea of trying to, to... give to international bodies control over your nation is a very bad idea. I favored Brexit, for example. Um, the ruination that comes when a, a party that is distant from your shores can decide for you what your economy will do or what an individual business can do in your country is outrageous deprivation of sovereignty and uh, political control. It, it destroys democracy in your country. So, do you, uh, Very quickly, Jonathan, I've just got about 30 not, seconds here, but do you think that this trucker protest that is now going worldwide, is this the beginning of something, an unstoppable movement towards populism, perhaps a new nationalism? I think it is unstoppable. I think it is a movement for individual liberty, and I am delighted to see it. I, I didn't. I was becoming quite less sanguine about the prospects for rising up against totalitarianism, 
collectivism, socialism, but not now that I've seen the truckers. And I believe it is an international movement. It's our, We're already seeing it all over. It'll be happening in the United States soon. Jonathan, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your insights. You're welcome. Great to be with you. Emord.com. Emord.com. Get a copy of The Authoritarians available at Amazon. All right. When we come back, the cowboy philosopher, former cattle rancher turned COVID data researcher and the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, Julius Ruchel, will be here. And later, the uh, former director of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency, David Redmond. Back with more after these. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Check out my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Later this hour, I'll speak with the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency, who'll explain how governments across Canada did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do in response to the pandemic. He calls it criminal negligence. David Redman will be here. He's worked with all orders of government and extensively with the private sector to develop emergency management in Alberta, Canada and North America. And prior to his work with EMA, he had a 27-year career as an officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. So you'll want to be listening a little bit later this hour when Dave Redman joins me. While only rarely discussed and frequently dismissed as a mere curiosity, the mystery of the disappearance of the disappearing flu is actually one of the most important events of the past two years. Unpacking this mystery provides deep insights into the future trajectory of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, exposes the abject failure of the vaccines to control the pandemic, and puts the final nail in the coffin on futile public health measures like masks and social distancing. Get ready for more than a few surprises as you follow me on another deep dive into COVID mayhem. Julius Ruchel is author of uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, 
the lies, the gamble and the COVID zero con and this new investigative report, the false god of central planning, the mysterious reappearance of the flu, natural versus vaccine induced immunity, the inability of the vaccines to control the virus and other extraordinary lessons about the end of the pandemic. Julius, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Great. That's a it's a lengthy title, but very, uh, very insightful. All right. So let's begin. What what did happen to the uh, the seasonal flu these last two years? Well, that's one of the remarkable things about it is that I think it was around March is that it essentially just completely disappeared all around the world. And I mean, there's been lots of speculation as to whether it's being whether the, the flu is COVID, but the actual flu tests continued without stopping. Um, it's just that they, they all came back negative. And so uh, but there's a, a phenomenon in that's called viral displacement or viral interference, where when you have a, an infection with one um, virus, that it essentially blocks infections with other viruses. And so uh, that seems to be playing a huge role because it is a fairly new um, it's a, it's a novel virus. Our immune systems aren't uh, used to this thing. So it's had such a huge outsized effect on our immune systems on so many people that that viral interference effect has essentially you know, squeezed out the ability for all of these other uh, viruses that are usually part of seasonal flu season to, uh, to infect us. And why, is that, why is that important then? Okay, so it's important because, well, as you mentioned in, in your introduction, I mean, one of the things that it shows is that like the like masks and all of those things are not actually responsible for the disappearance of the flu because the, the flu disappeared around uh, the 30th of March. And here in Canada, the first mask recommendation didn't come in until the 20th of May and it didn't become mandatory until the, uh, I think, the 18th of July. So like the, when the health authorities are taking responsibility for that, that's not what's causing it. It's viral interference that caused that. Um, but what's interesting is when you start going through all of the different uh, countries, you can see now that the flu is starting to come back. And that shows you when and the natural antibodies that from exposure are reaching a level where the flu is no longer, where COVID is no longer able to uh, um, have such a strong effect on our, our immune systems. And that's what allows the flu then to come back into the, the you know, to start to circulate. So in countries that have high natural immunity, like Sweden, like uh, uh, South Africa, like Brazil, India, they've all got the flu back, whereas in Canada, it's not. And they're all reaching it, like once they cross around, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of the population that has some kind of antibodies to COVID, that's when the flu comes back. And in many of those places, it's before they've even reached uh, um, any kind of high level of vaccination. Like in Sweden, deaths essentially plateaued uh, somewhere around... uh, I believe it was, uh, when did I write down here? I think it was early, like early last spring, March last year. And they've essentially stayed fairly flat ever since, because that's the point where they had the high natural immunity. And now the flu is back there. And why do those countries you mentioned, Sweden, Brazil, South Africa, India, why do they, I think you mentioned Brazil, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Why do they have natural immunity? Well, the virus has been able to circulate so freely there, like the COVID virus has been able to circulate so freely that everybody has essentially been exposed to it. I mean, this is one of the the big, uh, um, like the the silly parts of this whole COVID debacle is everybody looks at COVID cases based on PCR tests. But when you actually do antibody tests to see who has antibodies, the vast majority of people in these countries already have been exposed to this and developed antibodies without ever developing any kind of symptoms and without going and getting a PCR test. And South I mean, Africa had relatively low vaccine uptake, as I recall. 
That's right. Yeah. Julius Reuschel is the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble and the COVID Zero Con. He's also the author of a new investigative report titled The False God of Central Planning. Why do you call it the God of Central Planning? Uh, the, the, the False, false God. God. Sorry, the yeah. False God of Central Planning. Um, because, again, the, 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 the government has essentially stepped in and claimed to be able to manage this entire pandemic and everything that surrounds it. And yet, you know, looking through, for example, when with the flu disappearance and all of these different parts that have, have featured in this piece, the government essentially has been irrelevant to managing this pandemic. And that the, the countries that are actually now faring very well, like a country like Sweden, they've essentially pulled through it without doing any of these control measures that have tried to, you know, control every single step of what we're allowed and not allowed to do. And yet, you know, the, you know, the flu has essentially come back because the virus has already moved through the population and their death rates are no different than neighboring countries like uh, like Germany that try so another, to control everything. So if I'm understanding this, Julius, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, yeah. the, the disappearance of the flu and then the reappearance of the flu is kind of a harbinger. So explain yes. what, uh, explain again the lesson here of the reappearance of the flu. Okay, so the reappearance of the flu is essentially signaling that the uh, the COVID virus is no longer able to uh, displace these other seasonal viruses. So it's no longer having this outsized effect on our immune system that's able to block infections with these other things. So like, for example, in, in Sweden, um, the, the only difference between Sweden and Germany is that you know, they have the same variants, they have the same vaccination rates, all of those things. But the difference is that the virus is able to circulate freely. And so in Sweden, the, the uh, flu is now back and deaths from COVID are essentially flat compared to uh, a country like Germany, where they've had much higher deaths still and they don't have the high immunity and the flu is not back in Germany. And the flu returned to Sweden because uh, the Omicron uh, virus is so mild, it can no longer displace the flu. Is that the idea? It's actually no, it's actually something different because, uh, for example, Delta also moved through Sweden and Germany at the same time. And so in Germany, Delta was fairly deadly and in Sweden, it was not. So the main difference between the two of them was that Sweden had the high natural immunity because the virus had already circulated so much. Right. And so that's where the, the difference here is not just that Omicron is milder, but that countries that have you know, high natural immunity, sure, they can still get infected, but it's not going to land people in the hospital or in a grave nearly as easily. OK, so what's happening in Canada? You call it a test case for Omicron. Yes, because Canada was one of the first countries where you've got a high vaccinated population that was exposed to Omicron because like in Sweden and Germany, it was still Delta when uh, when Omicron was arriving in other places. So, you know, here we've got a, a situation where, you know, is Omicron mild or is Omicron mild like in, in South Africa because they have natural immunity? Because our natural immunity is very, very low because of our, our strict measures in Canada. So Omicron arrived here and we've seen like, I mean, yes, the hospital rates have gone up and so have uh, deaths, but not in a very large amount, considering the huge scale of people that are now getting infected with this thing. And we're also seeing that a lot of the folks that are being infected, um, like the, 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 the statistics that are coming out of the hospitals and out of, and all of that, it's not necessarily that they're in hospital with COVID. They're actually there and then they have a PCR test that's positive. I think Ontario said 50% of their uh, their hospitalizations are actually incidental. They were admitted to be treated for something else and then have a, had a positive PCR test. So it's kind of showing, thankfully, that Omicron is mild even in populations like ours that haven't had much exposure. 
and not just like in South Africa or Sweden that have. Julius, uh, I mean, unless I'm missing something from your bio, you're not an immunologist or a virologist. You're a cattle rancher. You're an author. How is it that you were able to make this observation? I'm not reading this anywhere else. <laughs> I started writing about all this COVID stuff in the in the spring. Like I had a, a website where I was teaching uh, some you know cattle uh, uh, farming practices. Um, and so I'm used to dipping into all of this kind of stuff. I have a background in geology, so I'm, you know, I understand statistics and that sort of stuff. And so I've just been digging into the raw data. It's, I mean, I'm looking at the government's raw data here. I'm not, uh, not pulling all, any of these statistics off of anything else other than, you know, what's purely official put out by the statistics departments, but which is at odds with what the uh, public health officials are saying in the media. Uh, now, when we're talking about uh, COVID, you say, you know, a uh, new virus, but same role it's playing, uh, particularly yes. with the elderly. We used to call pneumonia an old person's best friend because it would take them quickly and, uh, you know, usually painlessly. That's right. So it, uh, talk to me more about uh, the, the COVID's role, uh, old role as the old man's friend. If you look at the in Canada, the year over year, all cause mortality. The number of folks that have passed away is essentially the same. And so what you see then from that is that essentially the same people that would have been dying normally from influenza and other seasonal viruses in the winter are now dying from COVID. So COVID has essentially pushed out the flu and is playing that exact same role of getting people that are in nursing homes or that are near the end of their life or have extreme vulnerabilities uh, like because of pre-existing conditions. And, I mean, we see that very clearly in the epidemiology data. There's something like a thousand-fold difference in risk between somebody that's you know young and healthy versus somebody that's living in an old folks' home, right? So the, the, just like uh, influenza, the folks that are at risk from this thing are the folks that are already at risk from influenza and other seasonal viruses. They're folks that have immune systems that are weak and essentially shutting down at the end of life. Right. And we finally, finally, after two years, had the uh, the director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, uh, hide out on a, a Sunday chat show where nobody watches to finally admit uh, that uh, up to 75 percent of all covid deaths in the United States were uh, with covid uh, and up to four serious comorbidities. Uh, Julius will take uh, one final time out and come back. Uh, and discuss further. Julius Ruchel is uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con. How can people read the full report? Uh, if they come to my website at uh, www.juliusruchel.com, everything is there. All right, and we'll spell it. Uh, it's Julius, and then Ruchel is R-U-E-C-H-E-L. R-U-E-C-H-E-L. JuliusRuchel.com. One of the big mistakes uh, that was made, you say, is is totally underestimating how uh, how many people were exposed to SARS-CoV-2. That's you right. give the example, actually, of white-tailed deer in the state of uh, Iowa. Explain. It's extraordinary, actually, that the last winter, uh, I guess, through the various hunters and whatnot that are that were harvesting deer, they started doing PCR tests to kind of get a, a survey of what the deer population, how many of them had been exposed to COVID. And 80% of them already had exposure during that one winter. I mean, it, it really shows you how quickly this virus will, you know, spread through an entire population. And yet the forests there were not f- filled with coughing and dying deer. So, again, it, the vast majority of them are just fine and were probably asymptomatic, but now have antibodies and had some kind of exposure. Okay. And so because our public health officials and politicians were unable to sort of appreciate this point, how quickly it spreads, 
what's the takeaway then? The takeaway is that, you know, what should have happened last year, like in 2020, or not last year, but two years ago, is that the, the vulnerable population should have been advised to voluntarily isolate themselves for the, the first big wave that came through and allowed the rest of us who are not going to be likely to have any kind of severe outcomes to be exposed to this thing, have our, you know, asymptomatic or mild flu that, you know, it's playing the same role of, of a seasonal flu or similar to a seasonal flu virus. And then most people would have had antibodies and that would have starved the virus of hosts so that the vulnerable would have been able to get back to their lives and not have to worry about sheltering and hiding away. But instead, they've essentially been you know, trapped away from society at risk for two years because the rest of us were not able to get exposed to this thing. In other words, they did everything wrong. Exactly. And I mean, the idea of waiting for these vaccines has been insane because, as I said, like it made everybody have to wait for two years that's vulnerable. And as we're seeing now, the vaccines are actually not what's causing the, the like, I mean, look at, you know, Germany versus Sweden, where Germany is having high, had high issues with the Delta virus, despite high vaccination rates. And Sweden, which had high natural immunity, had no, no more dying anymore because they allowed the virus to circulate freely. So this, the idea of this, this uh, vaccine being the savior, the exit out of this whole entire disaster has been actually the, the cause of a huge amount of unnecessary suffering and hasn't achieved anything. Well, here's the frustrating part, Julius, and the tragic part yeah. is, is all of the 10 provinces and three territories, they had a pandemic uh, emergency pr- uh, pandemic plan in yes. place. Uh, and all of them, every single province and every territory through those perfectly good plans, which talk about things like focus protection. They talk about, um, you know, protecting the vulnerable, vulnerable, but maintaining societal cohesion and keeping things open and keeping the economy open. Uh, They were thrown out the window. Why do you suppose they did that? You know, I, I think it began with a hysteria that everybody just absolutely panicked and threw out. I mean, at, at the heart of this is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that when you have individual autonomy, that be pri- provides a hard limit on how far the government can go in a panic situation. That that should have been the, the last check and balance. This is, well, you can recommend things to us, but you can't take away our rights. Because the moment that you do that, you stop the, the, the discussion that would have been able to solve this, to, to sort of diffuse the panic and get people to, from different points of view to be able to speak about things. Instead, that was tossed out the window. And you know, there's this entire, you know, there's kind of an idea that's been growing more and more that the government is meant to manage everything in all of life. And they've, you know, they injected that idea into the, the management of this pandemic as well, where they tried to, you know, control everything and save the world. And in the process, they made a real hash of it. Saskatchewan has finally uh, come around. Uh, they're going to drop the mandates, all mandates by the end of February. Here in Ontario, our, uh, our premier is doubling and tripling down, uh, much like the vaccine. Uh, if you were sitting around the science table, And, you know, just spending 15 minutes with me, it's very clear to me, a cattle rancher and an author, uh, you have far more common sense uh, than any of the people sitting around the science table. What would you advise the premier to do at this point? They have to drop everything. I mean, ultimately, Section 1 of our Constitution says you cannot take away people's rights uh, without, uh, you know, an actual in front of a court weighing of the evidence to justify it. And that's never been done. So from a legal standpoint, this all just needs to collapse instantly. Um, but as far as the, from a management point of view, like, the rest of us need to go about our lives and the, the folks that are vulnerable need to voluntarily 
based on their own assessment of risks and priorities, be advised to shelter at home until each of like these waves last, you know, six to eight weeks at most. We're already, things are already starting to come down here now with Omicron. Like, let them know, stay away from folks for, for a few more weeks, and then we can all go back to our lives. And so that, you know, the focus needs to be protecting those, those that small percentage of the population that really is vulnerable, because we know who they are. I mean, they have an outsized, like, you know, a thousand times more risk than the rest of us they need to be and they already many of them are already in a nursing home behind a wall like you just have to close the the doors in many cases like in previous flu waves you actually have the option of having the the caregivers that are there live inside the nursing home so that the doors just do not open so that's how like, they already have a lockdown that's permanently in place that really is enforceable by closing the door and leaving it closed so I think that's that's the, the point that has been missed by our, our health authorities that have managed us instead of the, the vulnerable. Cattle ranchers and truckers, if only you could run this country. Julius Ruchel, juliusruchel.com, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, R-U-E-C-H-E-L.com. Back to more of my conversation with Julius Ruchel after these. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Julius Ruchel is uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. I'm dubbing you the Philosopher Cowboy. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Are you still an organic beef farmer? No, I, I've been uh, writing about it since I left the industry, but uh, like I've been uh, managing a website where I've been teaching uh, pasture-focused cattle farming. Ah, okay. So um, it's interesting that you bring this up because we had the announcement from Premier Jason Kenney and Scott Moe and others that they are uh, winding down the mandates. They always talk about, you know, a path to ending the mandates and a plan to end the mandates, uh, and now, you know, at least, you know, they're 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 ditching the mask mandates in Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, but as you say, they are also normalizing, um, you know, their emergency emergency powers and government overreach. Talk to me about that. Well, one of the like in a democracy, like the basic democracy, basically the 90 percent can vote the 10 percent into slavery. But the difference between a democracy and a liberal democracy is that the uh, the individual rights of citizens are placed above the authority of government so that they are not negotiable by you know policies and public health uh, officials they they essentially they provide a hard limit as to what uh, government can do to people without their consent and so by uh, by normalizing that there's some kind of path back to normal we're actually normalizing that this was okay for the government to suspend our constitutional rights for two years, despite the fact that constitutional rights have to be uh, unconditional in order for democracy to function. Uh, in fact, I believe uh, Quebec Premier Legault, uh, you know, said that it's that he will get rid of the mandates on one condition, and that is he wants those powers to remain That's so right. that it would be, in fact, much easier for him to evo- invoke some sort of emergency uh, power. Very much so. See, that's the thing is that there's, there's beyond the fact that the, like the individual rights are the uh, like essential for us each individually to manage all the, the risks that are in our own life that go beyond COVID, which you know we've all experienced that now where we haven't had that opportunity for two years to manage anything in our life and where somebody can take away our right, like our access to our life. 
But the other part of it, too, is that you know, if someone has the right to tell you that you have to follow these mandates that violate your civil liberties, they can settle the debate with a mandate instead of uh, trying to talk to you, instead of being transparent with the data and being forced to, to confront their critics. And so I think that's like the, the, when, when the mandates rolled out in March of 2020, at that point, we saw all the debate and all the transparency that's supposed to be at the heart of our democracy like, just essentially evaporate. The, all of a sudden, the politicians, they could, you know, they could allow you to speak in a corner somewhere, but they could still force you to do something. So they haven't actually been forced to, to, uh, to face their critics and, and, face, and be transparent about the data that they're working off of. And the same thing goes for the scientific institutions. Like the moment that you make rights uh, conditional, the public health authorities and the, and the scientists haven't had to face any of the critics that are pointing out mistakes that these people are making. So individual rights are actually the, the, the cornerstone of a functioning democracy that forces everybody that participates in the system to be transparent and to engage with critics. Like it prevents people from hiding in an echo chamber because all of a sudden they have to talk to those people that don't agree with them if they want them to play along with their rules. Have you heard anything from any of the premiers when they were announcing the end to these mandates uh, to suggest that they were also willing to give up these emergency powers? Well, each one of them is talking about, you know, either Omicron is mild or they talk about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the benefits outweigh the risks. And so they're, they're kind of legitimizing that this is the path out of this. I mean, it's sort of like... Yeah, like I mean, when you when you legitimize that the, the majority can vote its way into somebody's life, it's sort of like saying, well, if if you know my liver, my kidney, my lungs, my pancreas, etc., if I can save six people, then it's justified for me to be uh, put on the operating table and have them all extracted because there's a be- greater benefit to society. So that's kind of the the legal principle that's actually being um, normalized here is that. As long as the opinion poll or the technocrats and the elites say that it's reasonable, they can essentially do this to us uh, unlimited at any time. JuliusRochelle.com, J-U-L-I-U-S-R-U-E-C-H-E-L.com. JuliusRochelle.com, his latest article uh, is a good one, and he's also the author of autopsy of a pandemic and he writes in his latest article again liberal democracy was built around the principle that individual rights must be unconditional in other words they are meant to be to supersede the authority of government consequently individual rights such as bodily autonomy were meant to serve as checks and balances on government uh, on government power they were meant to provide a hard limit to what our governments can do to us without our individual consent if the government cannot override your rights to bend you to its will, then it will be forced to try to convince you by talking with you. That forces governments to be transparent and to engage in meaningful debate with critics. Your ability to say no and to have your cho- choice respected is the difference between a functioning liberal democracy and authoritarian regime. So it would, ass- uh, uh, it would, it would appear, Julius, that we have lost our checks and balances. Uh, is that because... Uh, our charter has proven to be practically worthless. Yeah, it's it's remarkable the way that the courts and the the politicians have essentially you know thrown out all the principles at the heart of the charter. I mean, there's they're finding ways to you know reinterpret the words in order to legitimize this, but the very, the principles at the heart of it are just being steamrolled left, right, and center. So, what is the problem? Is it the, what I call the weenie clause, section one? 
I think that's part of it. Although the weenie, like the the, the section one, the weenie clause, yeah, it's uh, it's meant to have all sorts of like there's a it's called the oak test, where in order to be able to uh, to temporarily restrict some of our rights for some kind of emergency, there needs to be a a, a public weighing of all of the evidence that to show that it's overwhelmingly in the favor of limiting the rights. And I mean, like the the oaks test is what it's called, and it's like a very burdensome process that was never done. So, I mean, technically, every single one of these mandates is illegal because they, they overruled the, the protections that are even in that section one that allows us as citizens to hold the government up to the light and say, okay, before you take our rights, show us the evidence that this is worthwhile. It's not up to the courts to simply decide that because the WHO says that it's this way, that it's okay to do this. It's not. So how do we... How do we prevent this madness from happening again? Do we need to revisit the charter and, I don't know, get rid of uh, get rid of the Section 1? Or is it the fault of activist judges? How do we prevent this? I think that it's, I mean, even the United States has, you know, they, they don't have a Section 1, and yet they still did the same thing. And so I think this is where the reality is that the public respect for the principles that are at the heart of our institution is what forces um, courts to rule in in favor of our rights so that it, you know if the courts are caught up in like if the judges are caught up in this hysteria they are also going to end up succumbing to it and finding ways to interpret it away and so the, it really is a battle for the hearts and minds of you know our citizens as a whole to understand just how important it is to respect these kinds of individual rights if we want our democracy to continue to function. So like we have to make the hard choices where we have to go against our impulses to try to control our neighbors in order to maintain those checks and balances that keep us from going down these dark paths. Seems like we need serious civics courses in, in school. I mean, I know they have civics courses, but I don't know if they really instill in young people, um, you know, what a liberal democracy, a functioning liberal democracy means Very and, much so. and how we have them is hard work. And uh, we've just sort of let it slide because we've had it too easy. Um, is the remedy then only to be found perhaps at the ballot box? And we have to insist on electing provincial and federal governments uh, and hold their feet to the fire and, and, and make them promise to get rid of these emergency powers. I think that's one of the solutions, but I think it goes beyond that, that it has to, it really has to be that the, the public demands this as a, like you, we have to stick to the, like stick to these principles in everything that we do. Because if we wait until the ballot box comes along, we're back in a, in a situation where you know, if, if the wrong party gets elected, then all of a sudden our rights are at risk. And so it actually makes it very difficult for anyone to accept the outcome of an election. If you're, rights can be steamrolled by a party that you disagree with. The only way that a, a democracy works is that no matter who gets in power, they don't have the right to step over the line of steamrolling the individual. So I think that uh, we, we have a, a public relations battle to win on, on the ground level before we even get to the, the remedies that come through the courts and through the, the ballot box. In other, words, in other words, Julius, we need to change the culture. I mean, that is Very a long so. process. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what's been interesting about uh, what's going on with the truckers is that it's bringing these conversations to the forefront and accelerating that on a big way. You know, whether whether somebody's you know right not to hear honking outweighs being able to take away access to somebody else's life because they, they disagree with the government about a vaccination or about a, a face mask. So I think that's this is sort of accelerating that cultural evolution that needs to happen. Great article, Julius. Thank you so much. I hope you'll join us again. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. JuliusRuchel.com. Julius, J-U-L-I-U-S, Rochelle, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, JuliusRochelle.com. He's also the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Coming up next week on the program, Whitley Strieber will be here. I'm not sure why I'm getting an echo again. However, uh, Whitley Strieber will be here in hour one. He's a uh, longtime alien contactee, abductee. Also wrote, uh, co-wrote the book with Art Bell that became, um, what is that movie? The Day After Tomorrow? I believe Whitley Strieber, that's the one, yeah. He co-wrote that with Art Bell. All right, this is disturbing. An embalmer has been alarmed by mysterious blood clots in vaccinated people. Amid indications from many different sources of a dramatic rise in the sudden onset of serious illnesses following COVID-19 vaccination, a veteran embalmer, this is in the U.S., a veteran embalmer is reporting that he and more than a dozen colleagues in the industry have been noticing strange blood clots in most of their cases. Richard Hirschman, with more than 20 years of experience in the funeral industry in Alabama, says that in mid-2021, he began noticing odd blood clots in arteries and lungs he had never seen before. In an interview with Stephen Kirsch, Hirschman said that last month he found that 65% of his cases exhibited the clots. He told Kirsch that if that every one of the 15 people in the industry with whom he has spoken have observed the same alarming trend. So this interview with Stephen Kirsch, Kirsch is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who has applied his skills in data analysis to the pandemic and he's formed a group called the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation and he serves as the executive director so now I guess he's got maybe a YouTube channel and he's interviewing people one of whom is this Richard Hirschman an embalmer 20 years experience in the funeral industry Hirschman said that with only one exception he hasn't seen any cases in which the strange clots were seen in an unvaccinated person. The exception was an unvaccinated person who had received a transfusion. Kirsch notes the Center for Disease Control and Prevention contends that nobody has died from the COVID vaccines. But overall, Hirschman has seen the strange blood clots in more than 50% of his cases. And in January, uh, 37 of his 57 cases, 
65% had the suspicious clots. Hirschman said that 15 peers with whom he had discussed the issue see the same phenomenon but won't speak out publicly. PolitiFact challenged Hirschman's belief that the blood clots are caused by the vaccines. Fact checker Nassim Ferdowsi, who has no medical experience, said she was told by an embalmer in Phoenix, Arizona, that dark clots have been found in COVID victims long before vaccinations were available. However, the clots Hirschman is observing are white fibrous material. And Kirsch pointed out that the number of COVID deaths in Houston County, Alabama, where where Richard works, is minuscule. In January, for example, there were nine recorded COVID deaths in the county. But Hirschman had 37 cases that month with the clots. If these clots were caused by COVID, it's highly likely someone would have spotted it before 2021 and done a similar video, Kirsch wrote. There you go. An embalmer alarmed by mysterious blood clots in vaccinated people. All right. I I mentioned next week on the program, Whitley Streeper will be here. Someone else I'm working on. He's been with us before. U.S. Attorney John O'Connor. And uh, John O'Connor was Deep Throat's lawyer. Deep Throat from Watergate, who was later identified as Mark Felt. And John O'Connor would later go on to represent Felt towards the end of his life and his family. So O'Connor, I want to get him on to talk about this. This is not getting any play in the mainstream media, not surprisingly. Special counsel John Durham, remember him? Yeah, you probably had forgotten. He's still he's still around, still keeping his head down, doing his doing his knitting, I suppose, if I can mix some metaphors, trying to piece together this whole Russian collusion fraud and who was behind it. And Durham says he's building a case to show the technology executive with whom an indicted Democratic lawyer on the payroll of Hillary Clinton's campaign was working to build a Trump-Russia collusion narrative and they gained access to internet traffic at the White House to try and obtain dirt on former President Donald Trump. So left-wing lawyer Michael Sussman, who was indicted last year, for allegedly concealing his clients, among them Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign from the FBI, when he volunteered since debunked claims of a secret back channel between the Trump organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. Remember that? And Trump went on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. It said, the Clinton campaign is spying on me. And Leslie Stahl, deny, deny, deny. There's no evidence. Stop saying it. You can't say that. Durham revealed in a Friday court filing that he has evidence that Sussman's other client, dubbed Technology Executive One, but known to be former New Star Senior Vice President Rodney Jaffe, 
exploited domain name system internet traffic at a particular health care provider, which was likely Spectrum Health, Trump Tower, Trump Central Park West apartment building, and the executive office of the President of the United States. Okay, so Michael Sussman, among his clients, was the Clinton campaign, the 2016 Clinton campaign. Sussman hired, according to uh, Durham, or if I'm following this narrative correctly, Sussman, who has been indicted, Sussman, who was the one that volunteered this now debunked claim of Trump and his organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. That started the whole collusion thing. So Sussman hired Rodney Joffe, and they hacked into internet traffic at Trump Tower. The revelations made as part of a motion for the Washington, D.C. federal court to look into possible conflicts of interest related to to Sussman's defense team gave allies of Trump more reason to believe the former president was spied upon as evidenced by an upsurge in tweets about the latest salve in the so-called Russia scandal, Russiagate scandal. They didn't just spy on Donald Trump's campaign. They spied on Donald Trump as sitting president of the United States. It was all even worse than we thought, tweeted Mark Meadows, former congressman who later became Trump's White House chief of staff. Cash Patel an intelligence and defense official in the Trump administration and chief Russiagate investigator under then House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes said the filing shows that the Hillary Clinton campaign directly funded and ordered its lawyers at Perkins Coy to orchestrate a criminal enterprise to fabricate a connection between President Trump and Russia. Bingo. Mic drop. This is huge. I mean, many of us long suspected this, but Durham is finally starting to untangle this impossible Gordian knot. This is a huge story. And the mainstream, it's radioactive as far as they're concerned. They're not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. But I will get John O'Connor on the program next week to discuss. Uh, Durham said that Internet company I, or one, assessed, accessed dedicated servers for the EOP as part of a sensitive arrangement whereby it provides DNS resolution services to the EOP, and that Jaffe and his associates exploited this arrangement by mining the EOP's DNS traffic and other data for the purpose of gathering derogatory information about Donald Trump. Jaffe alerted Sussman about the Alpha Bank claims by July 2016. Durham said last year and over the ensuing weeks and as part of their lawyer-client relationship, Sussman and Jaffe engaged in efforts with campaign lawyer one, identifiable as former Perkins Coy lawyer and Clinton campaign general counsel Mark Elias. Wow, this is heating up. This is getting good. All right. When we come back, David Redman, Alberta's former head of their emergency management agency talks about how all the governments across Canada threw out their pandemic plans because of panic 
and he calls it criminal negligence. That conversation is next. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Every Canadian province, all 10 Canadian provinces, all three territories, had a perfectly fine pandemic preparedness plan in place before COVID, prior to 2020. Ontario had one going back to 2013. British Columbia 2014, Alberta 2014. I'm not sure when Manitoba's was enacted. Newfoundland going back to 2007, New Brunswick 2006, Nova Scotia 2013, Nunavut. How do they compare these pandemic plans we had in place prior to COVID? How do they compare to our actual pandemic response today? David Redman is a retired Canadian military lieutenant colonel the former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and a senior fellow at Frontier Center for Public Policy. David, welcome. How are you? I'm outstanding. How about yourself? Uh, we're, we're all hanging in as best we can. When you were the uh, head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, what was your responsibility? As the head of an emergency management agency, you're responsible for looking at all hazards that might affect a province and for developing a, uh, an intelligence system to monitor any and all hazards and then to develop plans uh, that will address each of the hazards that are applicable to your province or territory. What led to all of these provinces suddenly enacting these pandemic plans? Was it in reaction to SARS from 2003? No. Uh, what, what happens in, in every jurisdiction in Canada is, as I say, you monitor the hazards. So I was the head of uh, EMA back in 2004, 2005. It's a regular and ongoing process. So for instance, you see that the Alberta plan is dated uh, 2014. But back in um, 2005, we did the update of the plan. So the, these emergency plans aren't just written and put on a shelf. They're updated every 10 years, uh, normally by law. It depends on each province what's required. But in Alberta, they were re revitalized at least every 10 years. So what happened back in 2005, we had just been through a series of events in the province. But uh, there was a new document released by WHO in 2005, which was the Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions Guidelines. And that caused Alberta to want to review its existing pandemic influenza plan. So we wrote an updated version in 2005, which after I retired was then updated again in 2014. So it's a regular ongoing process. And the purpose of those plans is so that when you're actually hit, for instance, in this case by a pandemic, you have a pre-existing plan that you should draw out. Look at the exact virus that hit you, because these were generic for all types of viruses. Look at the specifics of the virus that you're encountering, and it allows you to then very quickly tailor the plan, release it to the public in a full written format, and then to actually implement that plan step by step. And with all that pre-work done, it allows you to do correct decision making right from the start, but with a full governance task force. Were these plans designed only to address things like public health and, let's say, health sector communications, outpatient care, immunization, or did they look at the society as a whole, the functioning of society as a whole? Let me use the Alberta plan as an example, and you can make your own determination. There was four goals, overarching goals, the must-dos in the Alberta plan dated 2014. The first was to control the spread of the disease and reduce the illness 
by providing access to appropriate prevention measures, care, and treatment. That's goal number one. Goal number two, mitigate societal disruption in Alberta through an insured, ensuring the continuity of all critical services. Number three, minimizing the adverse economic impacts of the virus. And number four, supporting an effective and efficient use of all resources. I put it to you that we've done exactly the opposite and have not met one of those four goals because we obviously threw the plans away. Uh, prevention, we did nothing. Mitigate societal disruption, we did the exact opposite. Minimize economic impact, we did the exact opposite. That's a big fail. So the pandemic plan, as far as Alberta goes, I mean, some of the key elements here, prevention of a pandemic, mitigate social disruption, minimize economic impact. Let's just look at these first three. I mean, what happened between 2014, in your estimation, and 2020? Did they did they throw that one out the window and start from scratch? Was it the fog of war? Did they, lo- they lost the thread? What happened, David? I believe that uh, in February and March of 2020, we knew exactly who was most at risk from COVID. It was our seniors over the age of 60 with severe and multiple comorbidities. In fact, we saw worldwide that 95% of all deaths up to the middle of March 2020 were in seniors with severe comorbidities. So instead of protecting our seniors, which should have been our number one aim, and not using non-pharmaceutical interventions, as had been clearly stated in our plans, we did exactly the opposite. And that was because our premiers took one look at what was happening in China and Italy, and they panicked. They forgot they had pre-written plans or chose to ignore them and place the medical officers of health in charge. You should never do that. The medical officer of health had one task and one task only, which was to try and run a proper healthcare system. And our aim in March of 2020, instead of being to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the province, became to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the healthcare system. A completely wrong aim, putting the doctors in charge, became the only aim. As the former head of the emergency management agency in Alberta, you must have been having fits when you saw the way Premier Kenny and other premiers were behaving through this pandemic. Did you have anyone's ear at that time? I was completely dumbfounded by what they did. I gave them two weeks in March to dig their way out of the mistake they'd made made by using non-pharmaceutical interventions for a type of virus that they had no effect on other than extremely negative. And then I started writing. I wrote all 13 premiers. I wrote them 12 letters over 12 months begging them to give me a two-hour call to step back from what they were doing or to at least let another voice into their office to explain why the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions are A, not effective, but B, extremely And we've seen results of that. But we knew that in September of 2019, who had just updated every five years the document on non-pharmaceutical interventions that we had first used back in 2005. It was very clear that for this type of virus, you should not use what we now call lockdowns, which is in fact a broad sweep of non-pharmaceutical interventions. So I to try 
to stop and listen to somebody with a completely different point of view. When they ignored me for 12 straight months, and that's 13 out of 13 premiers, I wrote a position paper, which you can find on Frontier Center for Public Policy, which I published on the 1st of July, Canada's deadly response to COVID-19, in which I state that it is criminal negligence what we have done by our premiers, MOH, and the Prime Minister. That was my next question. I was going to I was going to ask about criminal negligence. You know, we can excuse maybe perhaps some panic for the first couple of weeks, but not after 22 months. So panic no longer explains it. Absolutely been, correct. Well, I've been talking about a reckoning that must happen after all, when we finally crawl out from under this mess. There must be a reckoning. I don't know what you want to call it, a truth and reconciliation panel or criminal proceedings. I don't know. But what is the the remedy after? You know, I remember when after SARS and the doctor said, we learned so much from this and the politicians, we learned so much. And when we first heard about SARS-CoV-2, they said, that's all right. We got this. We learned so much from SARS. They learned nothing, obviously. But what is your remedy after we finally get out from under this? What should be the reckoning? It's going to take a while because the first thing we need to do is walk back the fear. As an officer in the Army and then as the head of EMA, I knew you never, ever use fear as a motivator in any type of emergency. And yet our politicians in MOH have used fear as the only tool in their toolbox. They have driven into the minds of all Canadians that, number one, lockdowns work. And they do exactly the opposite. They kill at least 10 times as many. In most studies, it's 100 times as many as any COVID deaths could ever have occurred. But number two, they also have inbred into Canadians that the only way out of this pandemic is with vaccines. Both those statements, lockdowns work and vaccines are the only way out, are two categoric mistruths. We need to walk back the mass formation, which has happened to our Canadian public, which is now more terrified of a disease, which for people under 60 is less risk than seasonal influenza. I'll say that again. For people under 60 without a severe comorbidities, comorbidities, this virus is less deadly than seasonal influenza, and Canadian statistics prove it, world statistics prove it, study after study after study. And yet, if you ask Canadians, they believe that COVID will kill them in a heartbeat if they don't lock down and if they don't wait for a vaccine to save them. David, if there is ever, well, there will be, it's not a question of if, it's when. The next time it rolls around, if you're not too beaten down and and frustrated, I I pray that you or someone like-minded We'll be in charge of the uh, the pandemic response the next time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. David Redman. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Carlos Cagina and Ryan White. Back next week with Whitley Strieber. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.